Amen. Look with me, if you would, to two portions of Scripture. Let's read 1 Corinthians first. 1 Corinthians verse, chapter 13, verse 8. And then we'll go back to the Gospel of John. John chapter 11. High, high honor to Bishop Lictor today and to First Lady. We love and appreciate them so much. It feels like old friends being with them again. I don't think either one of them have changed in the seven years since we've been here. So things are looking good for the future, right? First Corinthians chapter 13, begin reading at verse 8. Charity never faileth. How many know what charity is? It's the love, right? The love of God in particular here. Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. And I would just point to you that these are the three divisions of the gifts of the Spirit that are mentioned in chapter 12. It's those that are the gifts of tongues and the gifts of knowledge and the gifts of prophecy. And they will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. Let me just kind of explain something here before we go. And this is not what I'm preaching to you. But I think so many people misunderstand what's happening here. Prophecy always comes to us in part. It's partial. You receive a prophetic word and it's a piece of the puzzle. And if you're so blessed, you'll receive another piece of the puzzle. But you're still looking through a glass darkly. But then once the prophecy comes to pass, it is fulfilled. You don't hang on to that prophecy anymore because you've got the fulfillment of it. So that's what this scripture is speaking about. Not that prophecies won't continue to happen in the church of the living God. But he's talking about a process that happens that you receive part through prophecy. You receive part of the knowledge. You, you receive partial. But when that which is perfect or the fulfillment of that comes, then that which is in part is no longer needed. Verse 11. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. He's talking about a maturing process, just like he spoke about with the gifts that come to fruition. There is an operation of maturity that has to come to fruition. Verse 12, for now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Somebody say, I know in part. That means we don't know it all, right? But then shall I know even as also I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. And then from John chapter 11, I'm looking at two verses, both verse 14 and verse 15. But if possible, I'd like to bring your attention to verse 15 first. I just want to show you that this verse begins with the word and. And that's improper English <laughs> because you can't start a sentence with the word and. And is a conjunction that joins two thoughts together. 
all right? And we understand the separation of chapter and verse happened years, hundreds of years after the original writing of the scriptures. So when that was canonized and put together that way. So now let's read it from verse 14 into 15 like it should be grammatically correct and see why they did that. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead and I am glad. That's why they separated the verses there. Because of lack of revelation and understanding when they were translating. But that's exactly the intent of the scripture. This is what Jesus, if you're looking in a red letter a Bible, this is what Jesus is saying. Lazarus is dead. Woohoo! Yippee! I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. I'm preaching today about unanswered prayers. Unanswered prayers. God bless you. You may be seated. We have been now, my wife and I and my family, as we raised our family on the road, some 27 years in full-time itinerant preaching or evangelistic ministry. And there is tremendous blessings that have come to us in the 27 years. One of the greatest blessings is the people that you meet, your brothers and sisters in the Lord. And then, of course, the tremendous miracles that you've seen. And twice I've seen the dead raised in our ministry. And I've seen blind eyes open and paralyzed walk and cancers eradicated. And these are wonderful things to be a part of. And also the revival services where countless thousands have received a salvation journey in their life. And the Holy Ghost is upon them. And also one of the blessings that you have would be the places that you get to go the things in nature that you get to see. And we have been blessed to travel all over the world as well as the United States and Canada and been privileged to travel up in the Catskill Mountains of New York State. And we've experienced the Grand Tetons of Wyoming and the Smoky Mountains of North Carolina and Tennessee, we've been in the Cascades of Washington with mighty Mount Rainier lifting its height to the sky. And we've seen the budding magnolia trees in Arkansas and the Grand Canyon of Arizona, the Niagara Falls of New York, the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters. This land was made for you and me. And so we, we've been there and done that. My, my wife has, Lois has a tremendous uh, thing that she likes to do. She's God conscious all the time. And, and when we see a beautiful sunset, maybe we're traveling westward in the evening and God just begins to do a masterpiece of artistry and paints the skies with hues of purples and reds and just for about 15 minutes and then he just wipes the screen blanket with the darkness of night and it's like he was just showing off for about 15 minutes about how awesome he is. So we see something like that, sunrise, sunset, Niagara Falls, Grand. It's, my wife does this. She sings about how awesome God is. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, 
how great thou art, how great thou art. And, and so she's always making sure that, that she and the family hears that this is a God thing and this is how awesome he is distri- di- distributing and demonstrating his awesome poetic beauty. And so we were traveling some time back now. We were traveling in L.A. Anybody here ever been to L.A.? You know I've tricked you. I'm not talking about Los Angeles. I'm not talking about Louisiana. I'm talking about the real L.A. Lower Alabama, that's right. (laughs) At least those that live there say that that's L.A. So I guess listen to the locals and L.A.'s lower Alabama. And so we were traveling on a main state highway, I think Highway 98 between Fairhope and Foley, two cities there in southern L.A. And we, we began to see a sign that was coming on the side of the highway. It was a big sign. I think it was, it, it's green. It might have been brown, but it's one of them signs that connote a, a federal or a state type of monument. And when we got close enough, we could see that the sign simply said Inspiration Tree or Inspiration Oak and an arrow pointing down the road. Well, we were running a little early and we wanted to see what this Inspiration Oak was all about. So did a U-turn on 98, got back to the road. We're only a couple hundred yards off the main highway and there's this beautiful pasture area. In the middle of this pasture area is a massive tree, Inspiration Oak. This tree is a live oak. That doesn't mean it's living. It's the type of oak tree. And the live oaks are these trees that have limbs that look like trees themselves, almost flat to the ground. And sometimes they'll dip down. I don't know if we're able to get that picture. Sometimes it'll dip down. Here we go. And you can actually see the, the length of this tree. This is actually, I know it's pixelated so bad it's not their fault. This is the only photo we have. But that's a man standing under that tree, a full-grown man on that side. And when we saw this tree, it was, it was incredible. It's only 65 feet tall, which that's pretty tall, but that's not amazing in itself. It's 27 feet in circumference. So standing at the base of that tree and trying to reach around it, all the family held hand and could not reach around the tree. But the amazing thing to me is the length or the width of it. It's, it's 197 feet. We can't even see it in this picture. But from the tip of one limb all the way to the opposite side, 197 feet. Now, some of you are, you know, 197 feet, that doesn't mean anything to you. But if you think about two-thirds of a football field, Maybe that'll give you a perspective. That, that's how large this tree is. And uh, the boys immediately wanted to climb the tree. And so I thought, yeah, that's what us guys do, right? And I, I got a newfound respect for old Zacchaeus. That wee little man that climbed up in the tree to see Jesus. I don't know how old he was, but that's not something that you do when you get a little older in age. 
And so I decided, let me help the boys, and I'll just enjoy by proxy down here. And, and they're in the tree, and they're literally running up and down the limbs. You, they're so flat to the ground, you can run on it so wide. It's like a, almost a sidewalk up there, an amazing thing. True to form, Lois is over there looking at the tree, tears running down her eyes, talking about how great God is. You know, she's the spiritual one in the family. Sorry, she's not here. So she, <laughs> so where she's singing and worshiping, and we're having fun. We had a great time and took pictures and and uh, went on our way. A few months later, we were headed the same direction and the conversation came up. Do you remember Inspiration Oak? Let's go back and see it again. But we were driving down the road looking for the sign and we actually passed the road and realized the sign's no longer there. We did a U-turn, come back, found the road, and this time there's not a beautiful pasture area. There's, there's a fence that is built. We peered through the gates of the fence, and inspiration tree is dead. No leafy boughs, no green, no Spanish moss hanging from it. It's, it's dead. And they put fence up because the limbs are becoming brittle, and falling off, and it's dangerous for people to be in the park. Shortly after this picture, they actually cut it down and sold pieces of this tree as what used to be of an inspiration tree. And I was intrigued by this story and did a little research on Google and found out that this parcel of land was owned by a family for several generations. And within the family, there was a feud going on, a, a fight, an argument, because half the family wanted to give it to the state or the government so that people from all over the world could come and be inspired by this amazing tree that stood and lived for probably 400 years. The other side of the family said, you know, we, we don't want traffic here. We don't want tourism here. Let's just keep it to ourselves, and we'll be inspired, etc." Finally, in the family, someone came into the power and said, we don't care what that side of the family wants. They gave that parcel of ground, and it became a monument for the entire world to come and be inspired. The other side of the family got mad. And because things didn't work out like they thought it should, in their best reasoning, in their best logic, they thought this is the way it should happen. And when it didn't, they got up at midnight and fired up their chainsaw. That's right. And cut a two to three deep inch gash all around Inspiration Oak. Those of you who know that's where the life flowing sap is, is just behind the bark and Inspiration Tree began to die. Literally, they brought horticulturalists, agriculturalists from all over the world trying to save the tree, but it was too late and Inspiration Oak died. I'm not a big tree hugger, okay? But even I think that is a crying shame because not only did they destroy the opportunity for the entire world to go and be inspired, but they also destroyed their own inspiration. I'm sure all of us would agree that is a shame. But we do the same thing in the spiritual realm because the only road by which God brings us a miracle is a road called faith. But when that miracle or prophecy or promise doesn't come in the time period that we think it's supposed to or in the way that it's going to happen, 
or in the particular thoughts and reason and logics that we have, then we begin to put blockades up on that road called faith and God can't bring us the prophecy because the road is blocked with our reasoning and our logic. What I'm trying to say is this, is that his ways are so far above and beyond our ways. And when we try to limit him to how he will operate, how he'll bring the miracle to pass, how he'll bring the revival and the prophecy, then we limit him to our own abilities to reason and to logic and to perform and to operate. You you remember them... um, that toy we used to play when we were kids called a jack-in-the-box. I'm not talking about that restaurant where you get like 10 tacos deep fried in oil for a dollar. I'm, I'm talking about that toy, right? You got jack-in-the-boxes around here, restaurants? You're blessed. That's all right. So I think it's a Texas thing. That toy we used to play with, and I knew that I could... I could manipulate Jack because it's all around the mulberry bush. The monkey chased the weasel. That's the way the money goes. Pop. And that spring comes loose. Out jumps Jack to perform for us, right? I knew that I could manipulate Jack and crank it, I think, six times. And at the very next crank, Jack was going to jump out of the box. So I learned that I could put it behind my sister's door, hide in the closet, and when she came back to her room unsuspectingly and the door brushed Jack, he would jump out and perform for me. I think mama performed on me, so you know, things are taken care of, so... I thought that I could manipulate Jack by cranking him to a certain place. Sometimes we do that with God. We know that we are in this intimate relationship with an all-powerful, all-knowing God, and so we want to manipulate him according to our reasoning and our thinking. We even try to do that with the Word of God. Well, your word says one plus one equals two, so I'm going to do one, and you've got to do one, and we're going to wind up with two. Somehow manipulating God. We do things like this. Your word declares unto us, any sick among you, let them call for the elders of the church, and all the prayer of faith shall save the sick. So we come down to the front when we're sick so that we can be anointed with oil, and we're prayed, faith is spoken over us. We go sit down, and we're like, my goodness, I went for prayer but for a headache, but now I've got a headache and a backache. Don't know if I want to get them guys to pray for me again. <laughs> and we think because we obeyed the word and went back that it should all happen like we think it's going to happen. Well, right there immediately, right? And it doesn't always happen that way. Because as Bishop has already mentioned today, God has a purpose for everything that he allows us to go through. And if he immediately saves us out of every little thing, he aborts the purpose of his will in our life. And so when we go to sit down, we have to make up excuses. Well, why God get an answer? Maybe I don't have enough faith. Maybe, maybe God's not pleased with my life. Maybe all kind of excuses why God didn't answer our prayer. And the truth of the matter is, 
we only know in part. We only receive knowledge and prophecy in part. And sometimes we think that we manipulate God. We want him to be our genie in the lamp. That any time that we have a need or a want, we just rub the lamp, a little bit of worship, and out jumps Jesus to perform for us. If we make him that kind of God, he becomes our servant instead of our Lord and our God and our Savior, where we are manipulating him instead of him leading and guiding us. Has anybody here ever put a fleece before the Lord? Do you know what that is? Putting a fleece before the Lord. I think you'll catch on as we go if you're not sure what it is. I'm going to be honest with you today and tell you that I, I still put fleeces before the Lord, but God he never answers my fleeces. Maybe I'm just putting them out wrong, and you'll see this in a second. But I had a real situation, desperate, and I needed to know whether to go the left hand in ministry or to go, well, that's the opposite. I guess that's the right hand, and this is the left hand of ministry. Which way to go, right or left? And so I prayed and put a fleece before the Lord by saying this. Lord, if you want me to go this direction, have so-and-so call me. That sensitive, spiritual individual, have them call me by 12 o'clock tomorrow. And if you want me to go the left side, then don't have so-and-so call me by 12 o'clock tomorrow. You see, I've got God's arm twisted behind his back because by 12 o'clock tomorrow, I've got my answer. So I decided now's the time to be spiritual, right? So I'm going to fast all day, you know, at least till lunch when the phone call is supposed to come. So I got up that morning. I'm being all spiritual and fasting you know, till lunchtime and, and meditating and praying, and keep my mind on God. And I'm waiting by the phone. Don't want to miss the phone call. And it's getting closer, and finally it's 12 o'clock, and the phone hasn't rung. And I thought, well, there's my answer. But I didn't want to jump to conclusions. I thought maybe God's on a different time zone than I am. I'm going to wait one more hour. Why do we do this crazy stuff? And so I, I waited till 1 o'clock, and I'm like, hey, that is my definitive answer. God wants me to go to this direction. So I walked out my front door to begin to do the decisions that I need to go to this direction because the man of God didn't call me by 12 o'clock. And when I stepped outside, I didn't realize that a limb from my tree had fallen on my phone line, and it was laying on the ground. That's exactly what I heard heaven doing, laughing at me. It's like God was saying, oh, you're going to force me to answer you by 12 with this improper fleece? But that's how we want to manipulate God. Because I'm so desperate by 12 o'clock tomorrow, I've got an answer. And when we do these things, we so limit God and all of his power and might and strength to who we are and what we can reason and what we can think. We want to make the scripture formula driven. Nothing in the kingdom of God is formula driven. It's all relationship driven. Even when we talk about the salvific formula, it's not a formula. It's a relationship that we enter into with a Savior, the Lamb of God that took the sins of the world. And in that relationship, we repent. And in that relationship, we're washed in the waters of baptism, calling on the name of Jesus. And in that relationship, we receive His Spirit living in our heart through the power of the Holy Ghost, evidence of speaking in tongues. And this is the beginning of our salvation journey. 
is not a formula. It's a relationship. Healings and miracles and gifts of the Spirit and signs and wonders are not formula-driven. Often people, people ask me and say, well, I want to be used of God in healing. How long do I have to pray every day? How, how many days a week do I have to fast? How much do I have to do this? And, and if you're thinking formula, you're, you're missing it. Everything in the kingdom of God, your anointing, your calling, your prophecies, your promises are relationship-driven. And in that relationship, we must not limit our God. I read a autobiography of the former president of the United States of America, Richard Nixon. And in his book, he was saying that he was raised in the home of a mother who was a Quaker. And she would often pray and begin to speak words that were not English. Obviously, it seems to me that she was spirit-filled. She would be used to speak direction to people's lives for things that would happen in the future as God would speak to her and talk to her. She must have been a powerful lady in the kingdom. And they were very poor at this time in their life. And they had pinned all their hopes on the eldest brother of Richard Nixon. They were going to pull all their money together, send him to university. And when the eldest brother got out of university and got his career, he would actually stay. He would not have his family yet, but he had spent his money and his time and energy sending his brothers and sisters back through college. And that was their plan to have themselves removed from poverty. And uh, his eldest brother is in college and they spent all the money to get him there for him to be doing these studies and he gets leukemia. And so Richard Nixon says this in his autobiography. I did what I know to do by the word of God. I prayed, I fasted, I asked God for a miracle and my brother died from leukemia. All the thing that he had learned and all the money spent Wasted as his life was taken from him. And Richard Nixon said, because of that incident in particular, I have become an atheist. Don't believe in God. And then he hedged just a little bit and he said, you know, there might be a higher power, but he really doesn't move and affect men and women's lives. He hedged a little more and said, well, maybe he does affect lives, this higher power, but he doesn't care for me personally because when I needed him the most, I did what I was supposed to according to his word and he didn't answer me. At least not, President Nixon, like you reasoned and thought that he would. This is a story that you'll find in many biographies. Ted Turner, the southern gentleman that owns so many uh, TV stations, CNN, TBS, etc., lives in the Atlanta area, made a similar comment that he was raised in a denominal Christian home, but his kid sister had neurological problems, prayed for her every day of his life, and she committed suicide in an insane asylum. And because of that instant, Ted Turner says, there's no God. He has no power. He doesn't care for me. Now, I personally believe that there's nobody in the place that's an atheist today. All of you believe in God. I, I'm almost certain of that. But all of us deal with this same phenomena. 
because we try to obey in the middle of trouble and hurt and brokenness and family being ravaged. We, we try to obey the word of God. We pray, we fast, we seek you, we worship, we come down to the altar, and it seems like he doesn't answer the prayers. And so we have to somehow come up with excuses. Why didn't God do that? Does he love us? Is my faith not strong enough? And we've got all these excuses because of unanswered prayers. I, I want you to see that that's exactly what is happening in John chapter 11. For these three individuals in Bethany, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, are very close to Jesus. They have spent time with him. They fellowship. Jesus has done miracles, deliverances in their life. And so Lazarus, their brother, is now sick. And Martha and Mary must be telling everybody in town, hey, yeah, he's sick, but don't you worry about it because we've got Jesus. We're this close. He, he loves us, and all we have to do is pray. All we have to do is send the word. All we have to do is communicate, and it doesn't matter where he is. He's dropping everything he's doing, and he's rushing here because he's a healer, and he loves us. That's their testimony all over town. So they send word to Jesus. And it's interesting to me that this is the way that they frame it. They say, Lazarus, whom you love, is sick. Like how many Lazaruses are there, right? That Martha and Mary would be sending notes to Jesus that they're sick. They wanted to somehow reassure themselves and to remind Jesus about the close relationship they have. This is Lazarus, whom you love. Not just anybody. One you're close to. And so Jesus is some distance away. And when he gets the message, he ignores it. He doesn't even address it. He doesn't turn to the servant and say, go tell him this, go tell him that. He just ignores. It's an unanswered, ignored prayer. The disciples must have been confused. We thought he loved Lazarus. Why isn't he rushing down to Bethany? We know he's a healer. We saw him do healings today. Is it a faith problem? Is he upset? Is he, what is the problem why he would not go to those that he loves and do the power that he has to do for them? And they must be thinking, and this is my opinion, they must be thinking, well, he knows everything's going to be fine, so no need for him to go. Maybe they're thinking that. But then after a few days, the message comes to Jesus now. And I want you to see how this is framed. They're basically saying this. Uh, Lazarus is dead. Don't even bother to come to his funeral. That's what they're saying. Don't, don't come to Bethany. If you can't come when he's sick and heal like you know how to do, then we're offended. We're hurt. We're confused, so don't come at all till we have a chance to get over this. And when the disciples hear that Lazarus is dead, they are blown away. Why didn't Jesus go? 
Did he love them? And so this is the text that we read when Jesus turns to them in all of their confusion, not knowing why he wasn't there and why he didn't go and why he didn't heal. And he says to them, Lazarus is dead. Woohoo! And if they were confused before, now they are just mind blown. And so Jesus turns to go to Bethany and he walks all the way to the outskirts of the town. Jesus and the disciples. Martha in the town hears that Jesus is getting close to the town. And so one of the gospels details how that she snuck out the back door made sure nobody was watching, ran behind the tree, then went a secret way. The gospel says she went a secret way to find him. And when she gets to where Jesus is at the outskirts of town, she's like, Jesus, your timing stinks. Why are you even here? If you were here a few days before, I know that you love Lazarus and you'd have healed him and I'd have fixed this great meal and we'd have danced and feasted, we'd have this great time, but you're too late. No in part. Story goes on and Martha goes back and she tells Mary, you can find Jesus and go that secret way. Mary goes a secret way. You know why they're sneaking out of their house? It's because they don't want to run into anybody. Because they have no excuse for their testimony. And anybody in town is going to say, man, what happened? I thought Jesus loved you. And they've got no excuse. They've got no reason. They don't know why he didn't show up. They don't want to tell anybody anything because they're hurt and they're broken and they don't want to see anybody. And Mary goes a secret way to him. She's the more emotional. And she must have fallen at her knees, pulling her hair. Ah! Just losing it emotionally. And she says the same thing. Your timing is so bad. If you had just been here a few days before. But Jesus doesn't go a secret way. He walks right down Main Street, all the way through town to the graveyard. Can't you see everybody in town who's wondering why he wasn't here? Shop owners are turning their sign from open to close, locking the door. And by the time Jesus gets through Main Street all the way to the graveyard, the whole town is there and they're waiting on an excuse. Why weren't you here? You get a blizzard in Chicago and they shut the airport down? Traffic so bad, you were stalled. I mean, why weren't you here? And everybody's waiting on an excuse and everybody's looking for a reason. And Jesus stands in front of the grave. And this is a powerful verse. It's the first verse I learned to quote. It's John eleven thirty five. 35. Jesus wept. That's the verse. So if you can say that, you're quoting scripture. You're hiding the word of God in your heart. You're well on your way, right? Um, Bible study quizzer. Here we go. So I, I see Jesus standing in front of the grave, everybody waiting for an excuse, and he's just letting tears pour down his face. They're waiting for an excuse. What's the reason? And he's not giving excuse. He's not giving reason. But he's weeping, weeping. And finally, as they watch him, they begin to nudge one another and say, We don't know why he wasn't here, but look. 
at that expression of love. He loved Lazarus. We were confused about whether he loved him or not, but now when we look at the expression of love, we know he loved him. We don't know why he wasn't here. We don't know what the excuse is, but this we know, he loved Lazarus. And when they saw the expression of his love for Lazarus, then he turns to them and says, remove the stone from the grave. And Martha says, "Uh uh-uh, we're not going there. Because that's a stink to my testimony. I've already buried that. I didn't understand why you weren't here. I was confused. But I want you to know that's in my past. And I'm not going back. I'm not going to be vulnerable in that area. I'm just going to keep it closed and ignore that that happened. Because I don't even understand that. And when I think about it, it hurts. And it's. And Jesus said, remove the stone. You've got to be vulnerable in that place where you thought he failed you. And so they moved the stone. And Jesus looks into the inky blackness of death and speaks, Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. And from a grave where he's been dead for four days and his body is decaying, Life comes back to that body and he's wrapped head to toe with grave clothes so maybe he just bunny hopped out of the grave but when he does Jesus turns not just to Martha and Mary or the disciples but to the entire town and says now loose him and let him go now the disciples understand why Jesus is jumping up and clicking his heels at Lazarus died because before they had faith that he was a healer But now they have faith to a new dimension that he is the resurrection and he's the life. It's only because of unanswered prayers that their faith goes to another level. It's only because of unanswered prayers that they know him in greater dimensions. You would not believe how many times over the past handful of years that I've heard great and powerful men of God shake their head and say, we had such momentum before COVID. Harvest was coming, was praying them through, there was great discipleship. I don't understand the timing of why and how this could happen. Can I tell you that God heard every prayer that we prayed? He could have just wiped COVID from the face of the earth and it not been a problem, but he's got a greater revelation for us than just healing us. Can I tell you that like you, I had good friends that went on to their reward. Honestly, some of them ready and maybe some of them not. And the cry and the anguish of my heart and my spirit is, where are you, God? I'm praying, believing. We had a swell of revival and things are beginning to flow. Why this timing? 
We have to understand that in our best reasoning and in our best logic, we are so finite and he is so infinite in wisdom. He knows all things and what looks like a failure and a setback is not a failure and a setback, but it's an opportunity of resurrection and life. I've watched resurrection happen to a local assembly. My pastor, and this has been a little time back now, but my pastor of 17, 18 years stood in the pulpit and read a letter of resignation. He didn't tell us why, he just said when. When I walk out of this pulpit, I will no longer be your pastor. I've turned my license in with the organization and you'll go about a process with the assistant pastor trying to find the next man of God to lead this church. And as he with tears in his eyes folded up his letter, put it in his coat pocket, started walking down the middle aisle, it, it was sad to see people leaping out of their seats and holding on to his legs, grabbing his coat and saying, don't go, just Talk to us. Just, we can work with anything and everything. Just whatever's going on in your life that you feel like you have to do this. And he kicked people off and pulled his coat and walked out the door. One week he was divorced from his wife, leaving older teenage or young 20 kids. Week after that, he was remarried to a girl that he had been involved in, left his church, left his ministry, and a man that had preached our general conferences, our most powerful conferences, cause of the times, and other events walked away, and that church was devastated. The next year in that church, there were 32 divorces. As people said and thought, hey, a pastor can't keep his marriage together. Who am I to think that I'm going to be able to get out of the mess of the hurt and the mistrust that I've involved myself in? People around the nation began to say, I pity the man that comes in and takes that church. He's going to have to be a second fiddle because... Who can preach like this man? Who can be an orator like him? Who can raise a church to some 750, 800 people <clears throat> in this generation? I can't tell you how many times I prayed, why, God? Why didn't you take pastor six months before this, before all this started happening? It would have been merciful to him. It'd honestly be easier on his wife to lose him in a car accident than to have this infidelity and adultery. It'd been easier on his kids, confused for years. Why didn't you take him earlier? You know the end from the beginning. But years later, I stood behind that pulpit and preached in a revival service. And a church 
that had 32 divorces the year after he divorced and went from a church of some 750 to maybe 300. Now as I stand there, they're back to 750. Power of God is moving from one side to the other. Backsliders are in the altars praying back through. And as I step back, the Holy Ghost answers my prayer for years and years and says, this is why. Because everybody thought that church was built on a personality or a gifting of a man. And everyone said, the city said, the organization said, people were saying, don't touch that church. It's just going to dry up. It's going to fall apart. It's never going to be anything. And now that God has done a resurrection of faith and hope and revival and trust, God gets the glory to demonstrate that no one man can destroy kingdom of God no one man can destroy any soul that is hungry for restoration and faith and that there is a level of faith that we can go to where we're comfortable to live with just being healed but it takes a dying in order to see a revelation of resurrection worldwide We've seen the hurt. I just got back from South Africa. I was over there September 18th through 28th with a ministry team. Power of God was so strong. But our churches in Africa are devastated, feeling like they're starting all over because their people are so dispersed. The children in Africa, most of them, the vast majority, only eat when they go to school at school lunches and when they go to church at Sunday school. That's the only time they eat because there's no food in the homes. And when COVID came, the government shut down school. No more lunches. And they wouldn't allow the churches to give food out to the people, the transfer of whatever they thought was germs or whatnot. And so for people to survive, they left where they had lived for years and went to any third and fourth uncle who might have the ability to take care of them. And the church just dispersed all over South Africa. And they feel like they're starting over. But God's setting them up for a resurrection. This is the time that we are living in, that it's no longer okay just to have faith in God for healing and faith in God for promises here and there. We need to see a new dimension of the supernatural. We've got to move into a new dimension of the power of God and seeing him in his resurrection power is absolutely what the spirit is leading us to today. So if you have unanswered prayers in the house today, I've come to tell you, God is setting you up for a revelation of his resurrection and he's trying to stretch your faith to a new dimension. Unanswered prayer is not easy. It's hurtful. It's confusing. And the very God that we love and serve is who we're confused about and why we feel offended and broken. Jesus seemingly is not even trying to coat this softly. He's just like, yeah, Lazarus is dead. I'm glad. Because on the other side of resurrection, 
You're a greater Christian. You're a greater operator in the ministry. You have greater faith. You have greater knowledge and understanding of who he is. So gladly he goes through this. I wonder if there's even been almost, almost a smile of gladness as the whole earth is consumed with the craziness of what the pandemic has been these past few years. And the church is crying out and what can be shaken has been shaken. COVID has been the great revealer and people we thought were solid aren't even among us anymore. And some we thought they'll never make it. Now are beginning to be strong. God allowed a death to come so the fullness of the prophecies of the end time can begin to happen, fulfillment. We're living in a time of destiny. And yes, the rapture of the church, I believe, is just a short while in the future. But there is coming a harvest like we have never seen before that has been prophesied. The former and the latter rain together in the first month. God is going to do a quick work. And we've got to allow our faith and the understanding of who he is go to the next level. So this is what you can expect. You can expect that you have prayed for your lost loved ones for months and they are further than what they've ever been, but I see resurrection. You can look and say, I've taught Bible studies and I've witnessed and I've not been affected, but I see a resurrection. And what has not been answered has set you up for a resurrection. And God is going to demonstrate himself in the greatest power that we've ever seen demonstrated. I want you to stand with me if you would today. Unanswered prayers. Unanswered prayers. The world has its ideas of what unanswered prayers are. That we were praying for things that we shouldn't have been praying so God didn't answer them and how thankful we are when we look back. That's, that's the traditional idea of unanswered prayers. But unanswered prayers are the opportunity for revelation of resurrection and for strengthening of our faith.